Yes, amen. It is a joy to be with you. It's a joy to worship with you. There's very little that I love more than being here in this place with my church family, hearing your voices, singing those truths, because that strengthens my faith. That is so edifying. It's part of the beauty of corporate worship. And it's, it's a truly just a blessing to be uh, your pastor, to be uh, serving in this church. I love it here, and there's no place I'd rather be. And there's nothing I'd rather do with you guys than get into God's word this morning. So go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 4 once again. Luke chapter 4, we covered this text last week sort of very briefly, and I'd like to take a closer look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 in our time together this morning. I think we all know that part of our daily experience as humans is the daily reality of temptation. We all face it. We all know what it feels like to be tempted to sin. It's a daily reality. We face this temptation from a number of different sources. We face every day temptations from the world, from the people of the world, the ideas that are out in the world, the many different um, uh, things that are out there. That's why Proverbs 1.10 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. There's an expectation that our very environment is a source of temptation. But it's not just temptation out there. There's also the temptation in here. We face temptation from within our own flesh. James chapter 1 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You and I are like a car that has bad alignment. If you take your hands off the wheel just for a moment, it automatically veers into the ditch. That's part of what it means to be sinful in our very nature. We face temptation from our environment, temptation from our own flesh, but sometimes temptation comes not from our environment, not from our own fallen nature, Sometimes it actually comes from the enemy himself, the devil, whom Paul calls in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the tempter. Last week we saw that Jesus is the faithful son of God, the faithful son who triumphed over temptation in the wilderness. Satan came to tempt Jesus, but he, praise God, passed the test. And we rejoice in that, don't we? We rejoice in Christ's triumph over temptation because in his faithfulness lies our salvation. If you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you, I don't do this often, but go back and listen to that sermon because we have to understand Jesus as our representative, Jesus as our victory. His faithfulness is the source of our salvation. So we look to Jesus first and foremost as our representative. He passed the test, and he did it on our behalf. But having looked at that, having affirmed that as our foundational starting point, it's also true that we can look to Jesus not just as our representative who wins salvation for us by triumphing over temptation. We can also look to Jesus as our example. Jesus was and is the perfect man. What that means is we would do well to consider not just that he triumphed over temptation, but to look carefully at how Jesus triumphed over temptation. What was his strategy? What were his tactics? How did he overcome Satan in the wilderness? Because as we look at how Jesus succeeded, where we often fail, 
we can learn something about triumphing over temptation as we face our own daily tests and trials. So I want to look once again at this story in Luke 4 and discover some needed instruction that I think will be helpful for us. So Luke chapter 4, let's read our text together. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we ask that you would fill our hearts this morning with faith, that we would believe and trust the truth that we see here. We pray, God, that you would reveal to us your will for our lives. Show us how we can better and more faithfully face the temptations in our own lives as we consider Jesus, consider his ways. So we pray for your help this morning. I ask for your help, for the help of your spirit. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you are going to triumph over temptation like Jesus did, then you need to know four things. It requires knowing four things that I think we can observe in this text. We'll just go through them together this morning. And number one is this. Triumph over temptation requires, number one, that you know your enemy. You have to know who your enemy is. Jesus faces an enemy here in the wilderness, someone who Luke calls in verse 2, the devil. The devil, whom we often know by name as Satan, is an angelic being who once rebelled against God. Shortly after creation, he fell and he took a number of the angels with him. And ever since that time, he has opposed God in every way imaginable. He's done everything he can to thwart God's purposes, rob God of glory, undermine God's truth, destroy God's people. He is against God. He's the adversary. And that's why in Luke 4, Satan has his sights set on Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He is sent to do the Father's will and to fulfill the Father's plan of salvation. And so Satan opposes that. This plan of salvation will plunder the domain of darkness. This plan of salvation will set many prisoners free. And so the devil is desperate to do anything and everything he can to disrupt that plan. But Jesus was not caught off guard by these attacks. He was not surprised. He was not naive. He was not unaware you see, as a faithful Jew, Jesus knew the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. 
He knew that Satan is a tempter. He knew that Satan's plan was to undermine God's plan for humanity. He knew that there was this ancient enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and that he as the second Adam was on a collision course with the devil. Jesus would have known about the story of Job and how Satan schemed to do everything he could to undermine and destroy Job's faith. Jesus would have been familiar with the writings of the prophet Zechariah, who who told a story of how Satan stood to accuse the high priest at the time, whose name was Joshua. Jesus knew these things. He knew who he was up against. The New Testament tells us more about Satan. 1 Peter 5.8, many of you are familiar with this verse. It says, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of our brothers. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't always come wearing a red suit with a pitchfork or looking like some hideous goat-headed monster. He is subtle. He is sneaky. He is deceptive. John 8.44 tells us he is a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who he is. If we are going to triumph over temptation, we have to know who our enemy is, that he's a murderer, a destroyer, a slanderer, a liar, a deceiver. Because it's by knowing who our enemy is and knowing his character that you and I can be better positioned to anticipate his strategy because Satan has a scheme. There is a game he is playing. Ephesians 6.11 tells us, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is a scheme. There is a plot We should all be conspiracy theorists in that sense, okay? There is an enemy and he is conspiring and he's using everything to try to oppose God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Did you catch that? It's so important that we're not naive, that we're not blind to the strategy of our enemy, I think we learned something about his strategy in this encounter with Jesus. Just three observations that Satan is strategic in his timing. He's always strategic in his timing. You know, they say that with comedy, timing is everything, right? We try to teach our kids, don't give away the punchline too soon when you're telling a knock-knock joke. Give them a chance to think about it. Timing is important, but it's especially important with temptation, The same is true in that realm. And Satan is a master strategist. And he is masterful with his timing. Notice how he comes full force against Jesus when Jesus is at his most vulnerable. Jesus is full of the Spirit, verse 1. He returns from the Jordan and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's there for 40 days, tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. It's no accident that Satan comes to Jesus at this moment and in this place. The wilderness was a place that was the very epitome of the curse. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole creation fell under a curse. Well, you go out into the wilderness, it's full of thorns and thistles. 
It is nature that is red in tooth and claw. It is a place that is uncultivated. It's not been, it's not been mastered by man. It's a place that epitomizes the curse. And in Jesus' day, the common assumption was that the wilderness was a haunt for evil spirits. It's a place where the wild things dwelt. And so you could almost say that Satan is picking home court advantage to come against Jesus in the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, not only is this place significant, but Jesus is alone. He's alone, completely alone. There is no mother, Mary, to comfort him. There are no friends to encourage him or help him. He's totally alone, and he is extremely weak physically. He has eaten nothing for 40 days. Most of us don't even know what hunger really means. To go 40 days without food. I I know some people that have tried that. That does something to your body. Jesus is completely depleted. When it says he was hungry, that's a massive understatement. He was exhausted famished. And it's at this moment when Satan brings the full force of temptation against Jesus. And get this, Satan's timing as he seeks to tempt you is also expertly timed. He often chooses the ideal time and the ideal location to challenge and attack your faith. It's often when you're alone. It's often when you're weak and depleted. It is then that we must be especially on guard because the devil is a master of strategic timing. But he's also strategic, not just in his timing, but also in his target. And what it is that he's attacking, we see that he is very subtle and strategic. Now, you might think that Satan is attacking Jesus. That's what it maybe feels like with a quick reading here. But as we read carefully, I think that his target, what he's attacking, is actually something different. Satan's target, as we look at these temptations, is actually the trustworthiness of God and his word. That's what Satan's attacking. That is his target, and that's his target in your life as well. He wants to undermine the trustworthiness and the goodness of God because that trustworthiness and goodness is revealed in his word. So Satan always attacks God's word, and that's how he tries to undermine God's character. Look at what... Satan does to directly assault the relationship Jesus has with his father. He knows that he has to disrupt God's plan and that will require somehow getting Jesus to to fail to trust and obey his father. So he's going right after that relationship, right after his relationship with the father. He challenges God's word. First of all, in verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Verse 9, he takes him to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and says to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, just to give us some context, if you flip back over over to Luke chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus is being baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." And once again, the serpent comes and whispers, did God really say? Are you really the son of God? Is the word of your father enough to to prove that that's really true? You need to do some things to somehow verify that. You need to test God's word to see if it's really true. He's undermining the word of God, challenging God's word. 
Not only does he challenge God's word, Satan also seeks to counterfeit God's word. We see this in the second temptation. In verse 5, the devil takes him up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says in verse 6, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. This is a counterfeit of God's word. If you go back to uh, the book of Psalms, the second psalm, it's a messianic psalm. And there God says to his Messiah, to his son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your heritage. Then Satan comes along and says, no, ask of me and I will give you all the kingdoms. I will give you all the nations. He is counterfeiting and co-opting God's word. Satan's offering him another way other than trusting his father. He challenges God's word. He counterfeits God's word. He also twists God's word. In the third temptation, he urges him to throw himself down off the temple. And then in verse 10, he quotes from Psalm 91. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you go back and read Psalm 91, this psalm is all about trusting God. That God is a refuge for those who trust him, that God upholds those who cling to him in love, those who love his name. So this psalm is all about trusting God, obeying God, but Satan twists this psalm of comfort and he turns these assurances into some sort of perverse litmus test, tempting Jesus to test his father rather than trust his father. He says, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself off. God said he would do that you need to literally step out in faith and try him. See if he'll really do it. All of these temptations are attacks on God's word. He challenges God's word. He, he, he counterfeits God's word. He twists and distorts God's word. And the reason he does that is because he's really attacking the character of God. Each one of these temptations is subtly tempting Jesus with these suggestions, does he really love you? If he loves you, why are you hungry? Why are you suffering? Is his plan really good? Do you really need to suffer and go to the cross? We can get the kingdom another way. Is God's timing really wise? No one knows that you're the son of God. Why don't you prove it by jumping off the temple? Everyone will see your glory. Why, why, take, why, why wait to be vindicated? Do it now he's questioning, does God love you? Is his plan good? Is his plan wise? Is his plan for you really necessary? Is his timing for you really best? You've probably heard every one of those questions whispered in your own ear. We all have. That's how Satan works. That's his strategy. Mark this, Christian. Every temptation to sin that you face is an attack on the character of God and the word of God. And we must learn to see it that way. The temptation, for instance, for you to be anxious is an attack on the promises of God that he will provide for you and he will be with you. That he is in control and that he is good and that he will work all things together for good. Your temptation to become angry is an attack on the sovereignty of God 
That God is in control, so you don't have to be. That God is the judge, so you don't have to get vengeance. That God deserves all the glory, so it doesn't matter if you've been disrespected or dishonored. It's an attack on God and his word. The temptation to lust is an attack on God's design for sexuality, God's covenant of marriage, and God's gospel that marriage is supposed to be a picture of. Every temptation to sin is an attack on God and an attack on his word. We could keep going on with illustration after illustration. I had a number more written down, but we'll just stop there. But I want to urge you to start seeing temptation through that lens as an attack on God and his character in his word. Listen, Satan is strategic in his timing, but he's also very strategic in his target, what he's trying to undermine. But he's also strategic in his tenacity. Notice that Jesus was tempted no less than three times. It was probably more. We have at least three recorded for us. Satan doesn't quit after round one. He comes back for more. He doesn't quit after round two. He says, okay, Jesus is quoting scripture. I'm going to come back again a third time, and this time I'm going to quote scripture. I, I see your quotation of Deuteronomy. I'll raise you Psalm 91. Like he's, he's coming back to him again and again and again. He keeps trying new angles. And even after all that, he's still not done. Look in verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke gives us this imagery of the devil. He's not done. He's been defeated this time, but he's lurking in the weeds, waiting for his moment, scheming and strategizing because he's not going to quit just because Jesus has resisted these three times. Listen, if at any point you and I start to think that we've made it through our trial and that we've defeated temptation, we can't let our guard down because it's at that moment that we become vulnerable. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Listen, we need to know our enemy. We need to know his character, know his strategy. Jesus knew. Jesus was not caught off guard. And that's why he was not deceived. So if we're going to triumph over temptation, number one, we need to know our enemy. Know his character, know his tactics, know all of that. But number two, triumph over temptation requires, secondly, that we know the cost. We need to know the cost, specifically the cost of sin. Jesus knew that his compromise, his failure, if he succumbed to that temptation, he knew what that would mean. It would mean, first of all, loss of fellowship with his father. Jesus would rather go hungry for 40 days than lose that perfect fellowship he had with his father. You see, from childhood, Jesus was aware of this special relationship he had with the father. That's why we find him at 12 years old in the temple telling his confused parents, don't you know that I'm supposed to be in my father's house? I'm supposed to be about my father's business. I'm here to do the will of my father. There is perfect fellowship there. Jesus knew that compromise in the wilderness would forfeit that perfect fellowship with God. And was a mouthful of bread really worth that? The answer is no. Jesus also understood the cost that if he were to sin, it would mean the collapse of God's plans for his kingdom. Satan comes offering Jesus the kingdom. 
And that's tricky because Jesus deserves the kingdom. Jesus had been promised the kingdom. Jesus is destined to receive and reign over the kingdom. Jesus preached often about the kingdom of God in his ministry. But he knew that Satan was offering him a shortcut and that this shortcut would actually derail that plan for the kingdom. You see, God's plan for the kingdom does not end with giving it to Jesus. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that at the end of all of this, that Jesus will take the kingdom when all his enemies have been brought under his feet and that he will hand it over to the Father so that God may be all in all. That's the long-term trajectory for the kingdom of God, that it's all going to be given by the Son back to the Father that he may be all in all. Jesus knew that if he receives the kingdom through compromise, by bowing his knee to Satan, if he receives it in a sinful, illegitimate way, that it can never then be given back to his Father for the glory of God, and it means the long-term goal for God's glory is going to fall apart. It will not be a pleasing gift to his father if it's received at the hand of Satan through sinful compromise. Jesus knew the cost. He knew that avoiding suffering was not worth that ultimate plan for the glory of God and the consummation of all things. It wasn't worth losing that. He knew the cost. He also knew that if he sinned, that God's plan of salvation would come to nothing. You see, Satan tempted Jesus to step off the temple to prove to everyone he's the son of God. But here's what would have happened. If Jesus had done that and the angels had caught him, everyone would have seen that he was the Messiah. He's the son of God. You know what they would have done? They would have tried to make him king. They would not have crucified him. But Jesus knew that he came to be the lamb led to the slaughter. That's why he did not defend himself when they arrested him. That's why he did not fight back. That's why he did not protest when they falsely accused him like a lamb that is silent, like sheep that are silent before the shears, so Jesus opened not his mouth. Jesus knew that if he compromised, that God's plan of salvation would come to nothing, that he would not be crucified, his blood would not be shed, and you and I would not be saved. Jesus knew what was at stake. He knew the cost. Listen, friends, likewise, we need to know the cost. What is the cost of sin. Sin always promises something in the short term. Satan offered Jesus a full stomach, the avoidance of suffering, and vindication before all. There's something in that, something even desirable, even things that God intended to give Jesus, just not at that time and not in that way. Sin always promises something in the short term, but there's always a cost in the long run, and it's never worth it. You can Always be guaranteed that sin will overpromise and underdeliver. And we need to count the cost. Romans 6:23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. It leads to death. Galatians 6:7 says, "Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap." You cannot escape the consequences of sin. It may be a difficult life to avoid temptation. But Jesus says in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Short-term ease on the wide path leads eventually to destruction. Listen, if we're going to triumph over temptation, 
It requires that we know who our enemy is, but it also requires that we know the real cost of sin. That we never underestimate that within that attractive bait, there is always buried a hook. We have to know the cost. Jesus did. And because he knew the cost, because he wisely counted the cost, he was able to avoid deception and resist the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. There's a third thing we need to know. Number three, triumph over temptation requires that we know our enemy, that we know the cost, but third, that we know our resources. If you're going to triumph over temptation, you need what only God can provide you. Jesus is fully God, but in the incarnation he took on flesh, he became fully man at the same time, which means Jesus, like you, got tired. Jesus, like you and me, got hungry. In a very real sense, Jesus walked in our shoes. He's one of us. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, Jesus faced temptation as a man, as a human. And the resources that Jesus relied on, the tools at his disposal, the key to his triumph over temptation, that is available to us as well. It's been granted to us. Those resources are two things here in this text. It's the Holy Spirit and it's the truth of Scripture. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. This is the same Holy Spirit that at his baptism is symbolized as coming down upon him from heaven like a dove. Jesus has been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And so even though Jesus is physically at his weakest, he is spiritually strong. And friends, this is a resource that has been given to us as well. Remember, John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize us with the Holy Spirit, that he would pour out the Spirit upon us. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. We have a helper. We have the Holy Spirit to aid us as we battle against temptation. Jesus says, the Father will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The helper comes to be with us, to dwell in us, and to aid us as we do a number of things as followers of Christ, including battling against temptation. Listen, the same spirit who empowered Jesus is given to everyone who believes in the gospel. There's not a category of Christians who don't have the spirit, and then this other category of like super Christians who have this extra portion and they have the Holy Spirit. No, the spirit is given to all who trust in Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says if you've heard the gospel and you've received it, you've believed in Christ, he says you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And you cannot lose the Holy Spirit and he will not lose you because you've been sealed. That is a resource that you have if you are in 
Christ. Romans 8.26 says that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. It's good news for weak people, isn't it? That the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. If you don't think you're weak, you're not clued into reality. We are all weak. We have temptation within, temptation without. This powerful, shrewd, strategic enemy coming against us. Our only hope is that we would have a power that comes from outside us. And we do. We have the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did. Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit, meaning you rely on the Spirit. You're in tune with Him through your daily life. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the key to defeating temptation is the power of the Holy Spirit. What a precious resource that no matter how weak you may feel today, no matter how overwhelmed you may feel today, no, ma- no matter no matter how exhausted you may be, if the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you, you have an infinite and perfect supply of grace. You have an unending, uninterrupted source of power. The same power that created the heavens and the earth. We have the Holy Spirit. So even though our enemy is strong and we are weak, through the Holy Spirit, we can overcome. He gives us the strength to resist the internal urges and desires that we experience. The Holy Spirit gives us the strength to refuse the external pressures and persuasion from the world. And the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to say no to the lies of the enemy and to say yes to the call of Christ. That's a resource. But that's not the only resource. Jesus had the Holy Spirit, but Jesus also had the word of God. He had the scripture. There's a second resource here for us as well, that as Jesus is tempted three times, how does Jesus respond? What does he say? He says, it is written. It is written. It is said. Three times Jesus quotes and deploys the truth of scripture Now, it's amazing here to me that Jesus could have quoted from a large number of scriptures. These aren't the only verses. It might even seem weird. Well, why did he go there instead of going there? Because Jesus had the whole Old Testament at his disposal. But Jesus quotes specifically from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Deuteronomy chapter 6. There's two quotations from chapter 8, one quotation from chapter 6. So it's this very narrow little slice of the Old Testament. Specifically, Jesus is quoting from a sermon that Moses preached, a sermon that Moses preached, get this, in the wilderness to Israel during their 40 years of wandering. Did you catch that? It's the second generation of Israelites who had, not the ones who came out of Egypt, the ones who'd been born along the way, who had been very young. Moses preaches to them God's law. Jesus knows right where to go. Israel wandered for 40 years and was tested in the wilderness. Now Jesus is 40 days and he's being tested in the wilderness. So he knows exactly where to go in God's word. He says, I I know which part of scripture applies directly to my situation and my experience. He knows his Bible. And friends, this is exactly how we need to fight temptation as well. If we're going to triumph over temptation, we need to know and believe and utilize the word of God. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. When you feel weak, it's God's word that can revive you. 
He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If you are simple, if you are naive, if you're worried that you're going to be outwitted by Satan, you get into God's word and it makes you wise. It clues you in so that you're not gonna be caught off guard. Psalm 119, verse nine, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11 of Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word fortifies us against sin and temptation. In Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about spiritual warfare and the fighting against our our enemy, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. As Satan sends his lies, as he distorts and challenges scripture, as he tries to undermine God's word, how are you going to fend that off? It's by believing God's word. It's the shield of faith as we believe God's truth that that protects us, that quenches and extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. If you don't know God's word, if you're not trusting in God's word, then you have no shield and you will be vulnerable to those attacks. The very next breath, Paul says, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you want to get beyond just playing defense and start playing offense, you need God's word. This is our weapon, and it's the only one we need. It's the only weapon. There's not also a spear and also a bow and also a sling in the armor of God. There's one weapon, and it's the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. That's all you need, and this is our resource. Listen, Jesus was tempted like us, but he passed the test and he did it by relying on the spirit of God and clinging to the word of God. So if you want to triumph over temptation like Jesus, that's what you need to do as well. We need to know our enemy. We need to know the cost. We also need to know our resources. But then fourth and finally, triumph over temptation requires that you know your savior. It requires that you know Jesus. We need to know when all is said and done that Jesus is our representative. Yes, we need someone to show us how to win. Jesus is a perfect and marvelous example. But even more than that, we need someone to win for us. And Jesus does. Jesus did. Listen, while Jesus is our example, our hope, our joy is not found in perfectly emulating his example. Your performance can never save you. It's not about your victory at the end of the day. Our hope is found in knowing that Jesus' performance is enough. That's last week's sermon. I have to stop, otherwise I'll preach that all over again. But we have to look to Jesus as our representative, knowing that he secures our salvation by his perfect life through his substitutionary death and his victorious triumph over the grave as Jesus raises from the dead. So we have to know Jesus is our representative. If you don't know that, if you're not confident in that, if you're not trusting in that, standing on that, you will be discouraged and overwhelmed as you struggle with sin and temptation. You have to know that Jesus is your representative. You have to know that secondly, Jesus is your victor, that he's the one who liberates you. He's the one who defeats Satan. It's not we who triumph over the devil, it is Christ who triumphs. Genesis 3, the promise of God to those first failures, our first parents, Adam and Eve. 
He says, I will put enmity. He's speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus fulfills that promise. Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our savior. He is our liberator who triumphs over the enemy. And he does this through the cross. Although Jesus is wounded, although he is bruised, although he is crushed, although he tastes death, in doing so, he crushes the head of the snake. I love Colossians 2.13. It says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers. That's speaking of spiritual powers. He disarmed the authorities, Satan and all his servants, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God triumphed over Satan through the cross. The cross disarms him. It robs him of the power of death and guilt and shame. And it's Christ's victory over the enemy that gives us joy and hope because you're going to fail. I'm going to fail. We have before and we will again. We will not always perfectly triumph over temptation, but it's not ultimately up to us to defeat Satan. That's what Jesus does. He is our victor and our liberator. The cross, that decisive victory at the cross, shattered the power of sin and death. And at the end of the age, when all is said and done, Jesus is going to deal with Satan once and for all. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's how Satan's story ends tormented day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire. He loses because Jesus wins. Satan offered all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. It was a a power play of sorts. He was claiming that they were his to give. And in a sense, they were. He is the ruler over this present age. But those things that Satan possesses now, all of his power, all of his resources, the kingdoms and the nations and the systems and the ideologies, the philosophies, all of that, Satan has, he's pulling the strings on all of that stuff. But it's only his temporarily. It's only his temporarily. His time is coming. And listen, it will not be a peaceful transfer of power. There will be no negotiations. There will be no compromise. It will be an act of war in which Jesus takes what is rightfully his. There will be no submission to Satan. There will be only triumph and victory over him. You have to see Jesus as your victor, as your liberator who defeats the enemy. We see Jesus as our representative, as our victor. And I also want to encourage you with this, and we'll close with this. We also look to Jesus as our advocate who pleads our cause. He's our advocate. Satan's habit is to, first of all, tempt us to sin. And then once he gets us to sin, he wants to rub our nose in it. He wants to accuse our conscience and even accuse us and slander us before God. He aims to wield guilt as a weapon to destroy faith. That's what Satan 
does. And while Satan is an excellent prosecuting attorney, he's a prosecuting attorney. Jesus has an even better defense. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means a satisfying sacrifice, that his blood appeases the wrath of God, so there's none left for us. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen, there is no argument that Satan can muster that can defeat the blood of Christ. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, as Hebrews tells us. The blood of Abel, which cried out to God from the ground, and God heard. The blood of Jesus cries out to God today on your behalf, and God hears. He hears. And so no matter what the devil may say to slander you and accuse you and condemn you, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. He is our advocate. And if we are going to triumph over temptation, if we are not going to be derailed when we do fail, if we're going to get back on the horse and keep following Christ and persevere in our faith, we need to know that when we fail, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who has made propitiation for our sins. So listen, if you're going to triumph over temptation, you need to know your Savior. You need to know Christ, which begs the question, do you? Do you know him? Do you know Christ? I want to be cautious here to not discourage faithful Christians who battle with sin. But I do want to suggest something to you. If you experience no triumph over temptation, if you have no victory over sin, if you experience no change, if you're not in any way becoming more like Christ, more holy, if your love for him is not growing, then perhaps the reason that you cannot triumph over temptation is because you're still lost, because you're still a slave. You're still in spiritual bondage. You don't have the Holy Spirit living inside you. You don't have Jesus as your representative arguing your case. You're still in darkness. Listen, those who are lost have no hope of defeating sin. An unsaved person, to put it in theological terms, cannot be sanctified. Many of us have tried. We've tried to make ourselves righteous and holy without the gospel. It doesn't work. We've tried to help other people become righteous, become holy when they don't know Christ. It doesn't work. Listen, if that describes you, then what you need today is to be saved. You need to place your faith in the promise of the gospel, in Jesus Christ, in him as your representative, in him as your substitute, in his death and resurrection. It is only in knowing him that you can come to share in his victory over sin. Now, Christians do struggle, and they, do, and they will at times fail. But if you never see any victory, if you never see any change, you need to examine yourself to see if you actually know Christ. Perhaps you're a Christian this morning. You say, I do believe the gospel. I know that I've been redeemed. I know I'm not a slave anymore, but I'm struggling with sin. I am losing more often than I'm winning when it comes to the battle of temptation. Well, perhaps you have neglected 
to know your enemy. Perhaps you've neglected to consider the cost of sin. Perhaps you are asleep at the wheel instead of being on guard against the world and the flesh and the devil. Perhaps you've neglected to take up these great resources that God has given you in his spirit and in his word. Perhaps you've not immersed yourself in the scriptures to know it and believe it and cling to it. Perhaps you have been relying on yourself trying to grit your teeth and clench your fists and find it within yourself to overcome sin rather than relying on the Spirit of God. Perhaps you have failed to look to Christ and remember that he is your victory, he is your liberator, he is your advocate, and so you've grown discouraged in the battle against sin. If that describes you, let this text wake you up and remind you of not only what's at stake and who your enemy is, but also the grace that God gives you today. Christ. He gives you a savior. He gives you his spirit. He gives you the word. You have what you need to triumph over temptation. Listen, if you know your enemy, if you know the cost, if you know your resources and you know your savior, you do have everything you need. So let's look to Christ, trust him as your savior, and then seek by faith to follow him as your example as well. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our advocate, you are our representative, and you have passed the test. We have already failed. We thank you for the life and the freedom, the forgiveness that we find at the cross. And Lord, we know that we will fail. And when we do, we're so thankful for your blood, for your argument on our behalf that those sins are already paid for. They're already covered and atoned for. Lord, with that knowledge, with that joy, with that peace and confidence in the gospel, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would be able to follow your example, relying on the spirit and and depending on the word, counting the cost, knowing our enemy. I pray that that these truths would help us as we seek to grow in Christ's likeness. We know that your will for us is to become holy, to become more and more increasingly like the one that we worship. So Lord, we welcome your working in our life. We ask you to purify us and strengthen us and help us, strengthen us, that we too might triumph over temptation as we seek to follow and believe in your promises. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.